0: Well, good evening and welcome to Cornerstone. We're so glad that you're here tonight. Uh, if you need a Bible tonight, you can raise your hands and one of the ushers coming down the aisles would be happy to give you one. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 19, so if you take one of the Bibles from them, uh, that'll be on page 71. Um, and if you brought your own Bible, you can find Exodus 19 yourself. Um, but that's where we're going to be for our study tonight. Those of you that are a regular part of Cornerstone, you'll notice that um, by a quick look that I'm, I'm not Pastor Gary. Um, what's the laugh for? Pastor Gary's away enjoying a little bit of time of R&R so uh if you guys as you think about it this week make sure to pray for him and his family while they're just enjoying a little bit of a little bit of summer vacation time but tonight uh you're stuck with me. For those of you that don't know me my name's Jimmy and I'm one of the assistant pastors here at Cornerstone. Um I've been around Cornerstone for 7 years now, which uh, it amazes me how long uh you know how kind of fast time flies. It seems like a long time in a good way, I mean that. Um but uh yes, I've been here 7 years and I'm married to my lovely wife Amy. And we have a five-month-old daughter named Haven. And can I show you a picture of Haven? Yeah, I don't know why I'm asking. I'm the one with the remote. Here she is. There she is. That's Haven. I know. She is the cutest baby on planet Earth. It's, it's been decided. But we, we love her. She's a joy to us. Um, and uh, she's still learning to sleep. We'll, we'll work on that. I tell, I tell parents who have, like, adult kids that, and they laugh at me. Um, but she's really great. So she's, she's here this evening as well. Well, last week, Pastor Gary continued his study through the book of James. Uh, he mentioned that he's got a really busy summer uh, travel schedule, and so in as much as he's here and has the ability, he'll pick up that study when he's here. Uh, and then some of the off weeks, uh, some of the other pastoral staff here at Cornerstone will help cover. Um, so again, tonight, you're here with me, but I'm also exci- excited to study God's word with God's people. So this evening, we're going to be looking back in time a few thousand years to the book of Exodus. So hopefully you guys are all there by now, but if you would look with me at Exodus chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 1 and read um, a large chunk of the chapter here, so don't mind a little bit. um, It's quite a bit of reading up front, but then we'll dive into it together. Exodus 19, verse 1. It says, In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up Went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagle's wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Now jump down to verse 16 with me. It says, Then it came to pass on the third day, in the morning, that there were thunderings and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mouth quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and the Lord answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through and gaze at the Lord and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, we thank you just for the opportunity to be here tonight. And, Lord, to study your word, we count it a privilege to be able to open up the redemptive story of Scripture. And, God, I pray that as we look back tonight on this ancient story, that you'd help it to be relevant to our hearts today. God, we don't want to be people who just merely open the Bible as words on a page or as a book of history. But we want to open it, Lord, knowing that your words contain life for us today. So we invite you here to this time. We ask that you would quicken our hearts and our minds, that you'd give us receptive hearts to hear from your word tonight. And we commit our study to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm reminded of a story where a burglar broke into a house. And as he was grabbing the TV off the wall, he heard a voice behind him say, Jesus is watching you. And he's startled, alarmed. He looks around and he shines his flashlight. And in the corner of the room, he sees a parrot. And he angrily says to the parrot, did you say that? And the parrot answers back, yep, I'm just trying to warn you. The burglar looked puzzled. And he said, warn me, who are you? The parrot responded, my name is Moses. The burglar's confused and he he looks back at the the parrot and he says, what kind of crazy people would name a parrot Moses? And the parrot replied, the same kind of people who'd name a 150-pound Rottweiler Jesus. (laughs) I like that story because it's about Moses. So there's the tie tonight for you. But we come to a story here in Exodus chapter 19, not about Moses the parrot, but about Moses the man. The story we find ourselves looking at tonight is the story of the Israelites traveling through the southern portion of the Sinai Peninsula. And the previous 18 chapters of the book of Exodus describe the release of the Israelites from bondage and slavery in Egypt. So God's brought them out of slavery in Egypt. They're traveling now through the desert, and they're three months into their journey, and here they arrive at Mount Sinai. Now, before we can dive deeper into chapter 19, I want to just in our, our main topic for the evening I wanted to just set the stage for you all a little bit because you have to realize that chapter 19 the, the scripture that we've come to tonight It marks a very important transition in redemptive in the redemptive story of the bible While it took the israelites three months to get to this point The next 58 chapters of the bible are going to cover only 11 months in 19 days The rest of the book of exodus All of the book of leviticus and all the way through numbers chapter 10 verse 10 is going to cover 11 months and 19 days So the 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 scope of what's being covered in scripture really slows down You know, we've covered all of redemptive history up to this point It's going to slow down and cover a very specific period of time while the israelites are encamped at mount sinai This section of scripture from exodus chapter 19 through exodus chapter 24 is referred to as the giving of the law In fact, in exodus chapter 24, moses refers to this section as the book of the covenant So you'll you'll hear those terms used interchangeably sometimes But this law that's given here to moses by god on mount sinai is going to become the very heartbeat of judaism It's the center of the old testament And this is very important in our understanding of redemptive history Let's go back in time for just a minute. Do you guys remember with me the story all the way back from Genesis chapter 12, what God says to Abraham? Do you remember? Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. God says to Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Well, if you're going to make a great nation, you need a couple things. There are a few different elements of a nation that God has to actually bring about to fulfill this promise to Abraham. So one of the first things we see that God had to provide for Abraham in this process of fulfilling his promise to him was to bring about a people group. Now, to Abraham, he gave an heir. His name was Isaac. From Isaac comes a family. That family, in the end of the book of Genesis, is going to go down into Egypt as 70 people. Fast forward 400 years... Four hundred and thirty years to be exact and they're going to then number about six hundred thousand men In fact, exodus chapter 12 verse 37 that says says that when they were getting ready to leave egypt They had multiplied to about six hundred thousand men in addition to women and children So conservatively, you know people think this is anywhere from two and a half to three million people So god has fulfilled his promise to abraham He's provided him with a people group and they now have two and a half to three million people But if you're going to have a nation, you need a few other things And one of the other things you need is land Well, god promised abraham back in genesis chapter 15 that he was going to give him land So this land has been promised the land of israel The historic homeland of the jewish people it will be given to them They're actually going to take it in the book of joshua So if you fast forward just a little bit in your bible to the sixth book of the bible Joshua actually leads the people into the promised land So they're going to go about getting the land receiving what has been promised to them. So, you know You have people you have a land And the other things that you need are laws and leadership laws and leadership In this story here from exodus 19 to 24. We see both those things take place The people are given the laws. They're given the book of the covenant This is kind of akin to our bill of rights or our constitution It's the treaties for how the people of israel are supposed to live in relationship to god And they're also told who their leader is to be now we're introduced to this guy moses And Moses is meant to be a mediator to the people. A mediator is simply somebody who represents the people to God and God to the people. So he goes to God on behalf of the people. But he's not meant to be the sole leader of the Jewish people. The Jewish people are intended to be what's called a theocracy. They're meant to be a nation that is governed by God. God had set up the nation of israel in such a way that their Their whole framework was to be a nation who followed after the leadership that he gave to them Based upon the principles that he outlines here in the ten commandments that follow And so they're intended to be a people who looks to god in a, for, uh, for leadership and as a king I love the way uh, dr. Peter gentry describes this He says that god desired to rule in the midst of his people as king He wanted to direct Guide and instruct their lives and lifestyle Yet he wants to do this in the context of a relationship of love and of loyalty and trust So that's the whole goal of what god's doing here He's setting apart this people group for himself and he says hey I'm going to make you into a great nation and i'm going to bless you. I'm going to provide people I'm going to provide land i'm going to provide laws and leadership And I want you to be a people set apart for my purposes who's governed and directed by god So that's what we see happening here in Exodus chapter 19. So after a bit of a lengthy introduction, look with me again at Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. Again, it says, In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. So they've been traveling again for three months at this point and if I can direct your attention to the screen for just a minute You can see just a map uh, over here on the left side of the screen We have egypt Uh, Over here in what would be kind of the center top of the screen is the land of canaan This is the modern day land of israel And so, you know, they don't take a direct route, right? God takes them as they leave out of egypt all the way down to mount sinai, which is in the south part of the sinai peninsula uh, in in modern-day saudi arabia And so they travel, you know, from the region of Goshen in Egypt down across the Red Sea and all the way down to Mount Sinai. This journey of a few hundred miles is going to take them three months. And during this time, Exodus 13 tells us that, you know, God leads them in a pillar of cloud by day to shade them from the, you know, the harsh desert sun. And he leads them in a pillar of fire by night to provide some warmth warmth for them on the cold desert nights. Exodus chapter 16 It tells us that God provided a diet for them of quail and of manna so they would have sustenance. We're even told that God provided water from a rock for the people to drink. And finally, after three months of travel, they now arrive at the base of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, um, and you can Google pictures of it. There's, it's actually a little bit debated where uh, historic Mount Sinai is versus, you know, where different groups claim that it is. But uh, the commonly believed place for Mount Sinai is 7,500 feet of sheer granite that rises out of the desert floor. That's really a beautiful sight to behold. And so they're taken, you know, from the desert. And all of a sudden they arrive at the base of this large mountain in front of them. Now, from verse 3... Through the end of the chapter, we find a little vignette, a little story detailing the interaction of the people with God. I want you to notice tonight because in a very intentional manner, God is teaching the people something about himself. He's teaching them a foundational principle of how it is they are to relate to him. God is teaching the people that they are to approach him with awe. This is the foundational principle for how it sets the stage for all the rest of the way of how the people are to approach God. They're supposed to approach him from a posture of all of who he is and what he has done on their behalf. God is revealing himself as an awesome God who is worthy of their worship. So if you're here tonight and you're a believer in Jesus Christ... If you're here tonight and you would describe yourself as a child of God, I want to ask you to take just a minute to fire your inner lawyer and to open your heart and to ask yourself a question tonight. Does your all of God match his awesomeness? Does your all of God match his awesomeness? I'm going to talk for just a couple minutes about a few concepts, uh, a little bit about the concept of all, and then I'm going to give you five characteristics of a life in all of God. Well, I don't have to tell you that we live in a world that is constantly pandering for our all I mean the concept of all has invaded even our vocabulary We use all to describe something that exists beyond the realm of the normal human experience If something is incredible if it's breathtaking if it's just larger than life, we describe it as awesome If something is terrible if it's difficult if it's unexpected or very bad, we describe it as awful But all could simply be described as a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear and with wonder. In the context of what we're discussing, all is the realization that God is big enough and powerful enough to create the universe. Yet he's also intimate enough to be concerned with you and me. And as human beings, we are hardwired for all. I mean, this thing called all, it stirs deeply within the hearts of each one of us. This is the reason that on a beautiful summer night, we can go out and we can look up at the night sky and appreciate the stars. This is the reason we long for tall mountains and for quiet winding roads. This is the reason that we shout and scream when our team wins the championship. Ladies, this is the reason that you spend hours and hours searching for the perfect pair of shoes. (laughs) Guys, this is why we salivate over the 24 ounce steak at Outback. Millennials, this is why we wait days in line for the newest edition of the iphone And it's awful those of you that wait days in line for anything else But as people we are hardwired for all The reality is this that god created an awesome world and he gave us a capacity for all I mentioned that we have a five-month-old daughter, and, you know, I'm convinced of this concept nowhere more than when I watch her because she's beginning to, you know, open her big blue eyes and look at the world around her. And it's amazing how much she's in awe of just the little things. You know, we'll, we'll be carrying her and walk into a room where a fan is spinning. She sees it, and all of a sudden, it's just watching the fan. Now, I was carrying her the other night. We were out for a walk, and... It was kind of dusk in uh, the street I was carrying her in front of me and the streetlights kicked on and she saw the streetlights and as As i'm walking her head's just like this You know with the streetlights like she watches these little things. She's so excited when she finds her toes She loves to reach out and touch dad's nose I mean she's excited with different tastes and with different smells and with different sounds All these things are so interesting to her, but we live in a world that is awesome I mean think about the power of a summer thunderstorm Or the quiet of a winter snowstorm. Think about the constant rhythmic pounding of the ocean waves that God intentionally made a world that is awesome for us to appreciate. But the reality is this, that that all that God created in the world, all is meant to point us to the Creator. And this is something we've got to be very careful. You know, there's, uh, Romans chapter 1 warns a little bit about this. It warns about people who worship the creation rather than the creator. See, the whole purpose of God putting all in the world for us to appreciate is that it would point us to him. Every created all is is meant to be a signpost It's meant to point us to the one who is the creator It's meant to point us to the one who is awesome himself This is what psalm 19 verse 1 says It says that the heavens declare the glory of god The skies proclaim the work of his hands that day after day they pour forth speech night after night They display knowledge their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world We live in a world that is awesome and creation is awesome. But that which is awesome in is ne- created is never meant to be the ultimate. Every experience of awe for us in this world is meant to point us to the one who created it. C.S. Lewis said this, and I think it's very fitting. He says, if I discover within myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, I should begin to wonder if I was created for another world. All is meant to point us to the creator And point number three then about all is that awesome stuff never satisfies Awesome stuff never satisfies. Maybe you're here tonight and you can attest to this I mean the created pleasures of planet earth were never meant to satisfy the all cravings of the human heart Stuff breaks and it burns relationships end people tragically die The reason why people strive after the next job or position is that they're never satisfied, but there's this this capacity for all that people have that they're seeking to fill with created things. This is why we, and we know this as Americans better than anybody else in the world, this is why we gather around ourselves more and more stuff that we deem to be awesome. I mean, our materialistic culture worships stuff. How many of you have been to the new temple down the street? Walmart, have you been there? (laughs) Let me get a show of hands. Who, who's been to Walmart with its beautiful polished concrete floors, its bright fluorescent lights? I, I've seen you there. I know that you're there. I mean, it's amazing. You, they've got everything. It just extends for like what seems like miles. And if you're anything like me, any, every time you go in for just a moment of worship in Walmart, you find yourself leaving an offering of, you know, 10 50 or $100. Now, why do you laugh at that? Because you've been there. You've done that. You've stood in line and you've done the same thing I have. Look, I'm not saying tonight that the created alls are a bad thing. What I'm saying is that God gave us these things, but they're never meant to be the ultimate thing. They're meant to point us to him. Trying to satisfy the all desires of the human heart with created alls is simply futile. One of the early church fathers, I always like to go back and read What affectionately in in seminary we referred to as the old dead guys Um, but 1600 years ago saint augustine said this he figured it out He said our hearts are restless. O god until they find rest in you And so often what's natural for us as humans is to try to satisfy those desires for all that each one of us has with created things But those created things will never satisfy us now I want you to listen carefully to to me tonight, because this story is very significant. How many of you know that Exodus 19 comes before Exodus 20? Does everybody know that? Okay, you're ready to be Bible students already. Exodus chapter 20 is the giving of the Ten Commandments. Something very important is demonstrated here in the order that these things happen. What do we learn from this? Hear me. We learn that necessary awe of God precedes obedience to God. Before the people were ready to have the Ten Commandments given, before they were ready to have the Constitution for the nation of Israel that governed both their lifestyle and and how they were to interact with each other, before those things could happen, to which they were supposed to be obedient, they had to be in a position and a posture of a necessary awe unto God. If you hear nothing else tonight, I want you to hear this. If you are not ruled by the awe of God, you will be ruled by the awe of some lesser created thing. If you are not ruled by the all of God, you will be ruled by the all of some lesser created thing. We see the power to live a life that pleases God. It starts with being in awe of who God is. So as you're asking that question tonight, as you're asking yourself that question, does my all of God match his awesomeness? In the remaining time, I want to give you five points, five characteristics of what a life in all of God looks like. So if you would look with me again back at the text five characteristics of a life in awe of god And number one, we see see it here in verse four a life in all of god. It remembers god's sovereignty It remembers god's sovereignty. Look with me again at verse four He says you have seen what I did to the egyptians And how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself Now let me read that passage for you one more time But I want to emphasize notice with me the pronouns if it's your bible You can circle the pronouns as I emphasize them. Let me read it again He says that you have seen what I did to the egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and I brought you to Myself god reviews here his history with the children of israel and god is in effect saying to them How do you think you got here? Do you remember those plagues in egypt? That was me do you remember crossing the Red Sea? That was me. Do you remember the manna and the quail in the wilderness? That was me. Do you remember all those difficult places along the journey? Those difficult places where you didn't know what the outcome was going to be. When life seemed so uncertain in those moments, I was the one who was with you. And I was actually in the process of bringing you to myself. This is the radical thing here that we need to understand about who God is. See, he's in the process of bringing each one of us to himself. The journey that ends in us bowing a knee in all of who God is, is not always an easy one. It wasn't necessarily for the children of Israel. Sometimes the path that God uses to bring us to himself involves us passing through the sea and under the cloud. It involves us going through the difficult moments of difficulty in the storms of life. But the radical thing that we see from this passage of scripture is that God uses these things as he's drawing us to himself. Maybe you're here tonight and that's your story. Maybe you've spent years and years in the deserts of life, all, all to finally arrive at the mountain of God. That these words that God spoke to the children of Israel, the same words that he spoke to you, that he says, I've bore you on eagles wings and I've brought you to myself. It's as if God is saying that I've arranged the itinerary of your life to bring you to me. That should leave us with goosebumps because God's done that for each one of us. God's words to the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 19 are his words to us today. And this is one of the privileges that I love in pastoral ministry because in my time of getting to know different ones of you and, you know, throughout our time together, I get to hear the different stories of what God's done in your life. How he's used moments of difficulty and how he's just, it just through, you know, the course of life, you're able to look back on it. People say hindsight's twenty twenty, and it's so true because you can look back and see that sovereign hand of God at work in your life as he's brought you to himself. He never promised us that the road would be easy. So God wants us often to look back and to reflect on those moments of his faithfulness to us. For the Israelites, he needed to take them to a specific location for that to happen. God had a specific location of Mount Sinai in mind. He needed to take the Israelites to a place where all the distractions of Egypt were behind them and they could focus. Now, for us, it's not about location, but it is certainly about relation. God wants to take each one of us to a place where we can look back and we can see his sovereign hand at work in our lives sometimes we've got to remove distractions you know i don't know if uh you're anything like me sometimes it seems like the most distractions in life come in those moments where i'm trying to sit quietly with the lord and specifically moments of reflection just about his goodness and the different things he's done in my life but we've got to be so intentional about you know it's like you'll sit down with your your, with your coffee and your bible and you'll just think this is just the perfect morning it's quiet i've got my coffee and i've got my bible and it's like wouldn't my friends want to see this and you find yourself taking a picture of it. Next, next thing you know, it's like hashtag holy moments and you're on Instagram. It's just amazing. It's amazing how distractions can come. But God wants us to be intentional about taking moments in all of what he's done for each one of us as individuals. In remembering his sovereign hand at work in our lives. This should bring us to our knees in all of what God has done for each one of us. So number one, a life in all of God, it remembers God's sovereignty. But number two, it responds in obedience. It responds in obedience. Look with me again in Exodus 19 here. Look with me at verse 5 and see what he says. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine. And jump down to verse 8. Notice the people's response here. It says, then all the people answered together. So, I mean, they're saying this in unison. They all say together, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Yet again, allow me to draw your attention to just these few specific words here in verse five. If you will indeed obey. Five words. We find here a very important conditional clause. God is saying, if you will obey in verse five, then verse eight, then I will do this. This is language that sounds very much like a contract. It's contractual language. And what it does, it implies an action and an obligation on both parts. If you will do this, then this will happen. There's an action and an obligation on both parts here. It's a conditional clause. What is the obligation for the people of Israel? We see it there, the word in the middle of verse 5, it's obey. And in fact, he even goes a little bit further there. He actually expounds on it. He says, obey and keep. And so we see there this obligation on behalf of the people to obey. Now, obedience is kind of an interesting thing to talk about because for human beings, it's not a natural thing to us. Obedience is not natural to Jimmy Mullen. Just ask my wife. We're free will beings. In that sense, we're self determinate beings. We have the capacity to make our own decisions. Again, you know, we need to look no further than parenthood to understand this. Uh, it's kind of funny. I used to look forward to going to bed at night. And then we had a baby. And, you know, it's funny because at nighttime now, I feel less sometimes like just a human and more like a hostage negotiator, (laughs) except in reverse. And it's like, please, just do, do, I'll give you whatever you want. Just stay in there and go to sleep. And, And just hoping that she'll go to sleep. But, you know, what is the one word as parents you never have to teach your kids? No, they pick that word up all by themselves. What you have to teach them is, yes, dad. What you have to teach them is, yes, mom. You have to teach them to obey because it's not natural for us as humans. And as adults, we're no different. I mean, when a moment that requires obedience comes for us as adults, what do we do? We hem, we haul, we make excuses, we stall, we drag our feet. Here's what I find is we often end up blaming the law for our disobedience. We say to ourselves, that's a stupid law. Have you ever said that? That's a stupid law. How many of you, how many times have you been driving on battlefield and thought to yourself, well, this really should be a 45. I've seen you pass me. And that's just the pastors But we have this capacity We justify it then We say, well, if this were a 45 Then I wouldn't be breaking the law The problem's not me The problem's the law The law's stupid That's what we do We we blame the law for things And we justify it We say, well, you know, it's okay I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I'm going 45 So I'm not late for church And we pat ourselves on our back For being on time to church We have the capacity as people To be our own best inner law firm And to justify our disobedience I want to I want you to hear this though I want to submit to you tonight that the problem is not with the law In fact in the case of god the problem is never with the law Obedience is not first a law problem Obedience is an all problem Obedience is not a law problem, but it's an all problem. See obedience should flow from our lives Obedience to god's law should be looked at not as an obligation, but as an act of worship It's us saying that, in light of the goodness of God, in light of him rescuing me from myself, doesn't it stand to reason that I'll follow, I'll follow with my life, the plan that he's laid out for how it is we should live. Let me follow what he's laid out as the best course for life. I will obey God that it might go well with me and bring him glory. Now it's interesting because uh, 40 years after this story occurs, after what happens here in Exodus 19, 40 years after, after a story of disobedience for the children of Israel, after their wandering in the wilderness, 40 years later, Moses uh, gives some very interesting advice to the people. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, you can just listen to what it says from the NIV. Moses says, take, heart, take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day so that you, command, you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of the law. Verse 47 is very interesting. These are not just idle words for you. They are your life. For us as people in awe of God, the word of God should be our life. We should make it our act of worship in all of who God is that we respond to him with obedience, knowing that he knows better than we do. And he's got a plan for how it is that we are to live. That our, our obedience is not an obligation, but it's an act of worship unto God. ...because of what he's done for us. So a life in all of God, number two, it responds in obedience. Number three, though, a life in all of God, it recognizes God's transcendence. And um, look with me here at verse 12, and we'll continue in Exodus 19. It recognizes God's transcendence. Verse 12, God said, "...you shall set bounds for the people people all around, saying, "...take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base." Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. This is one of those passages that I find people getting all bent out of shape over. Um, you know, specifically because we live in a culture today where people question God for setting boundaries. That could be another sermon in and of itself. But transcendence is simply a theological word that means distance. And it means distance not in the sense of necessarily far away. But it means distance in the sense of God's his existence beyond the physical world. We could describe it as God's kind of other than, otherness. He's outside of and beyond his creation. And this is a very fitting idea based off how God reveals himself. Look with me a little bit further down here in the chapter. Look at me again at verse 16. See what happens. It says, then it came to pass that on the third day in the morning, that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled and verse 18 even tells us there's an earthquake i mean god reveals himself in an awesome powerful and majestic way and the people are quaking in their sandals the people are not designed to be able to approach this level of majesty. And when, they're, when they find themselves here before God at Mount Sinai in this awesome moment, they're just completely undone. I mean, this is the God who is never ending. He's absolutely powerful. He's utterly consistent. He's totally independent. He sustains all things by the power of his word. And in this moment where they're faced with the awe of who God is, they just don't know what to do. They're met with, their, they're, they're met with you know, who God is. And in light of who God is, they find themselves to be completely inadequate. I think that's a healthy thing because transcendence realizes the otherness of who God is. I want you to hear me tonight, family, because I'm afraid that we live in a time when our ideas of God, about God are unworthy of his majesty. One of the problems is that we've made meeting with God into all too ordinary of a thing. Now, the Bible tells us that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, right? Because of what Christ has done for us, that we can actually have access directly to the father. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's not the case. What I'm saying is sometimes as people, we become too casual in this relationship. We treat God a little bit like we treat Santa at the mall. We approach him hoping to get our picture taken with him to tell him how good we've been been this past year and then tell him all the different things he can do for us. But the proper thing for us to do is to respond to God's glory with reverence and with awe. Do you remember the story in in Isaiah chapter 6? There's a story where Isaiah has this vision of the glory and of the grandeur of the majesty of who God is. Isaiah chapter 6, let me read you just a couple verses from the story. It says that in in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up. He's seeing just the majesty of God and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood two seraphim. Each one had six wings. So you see seeing these angelic creatures and these creatures, verse three, they're crying out and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the doorposts were shaken by the voice of him who cried out and the house was filled with smoke. But notice what Isaiah says. He says, and so I said, woe is me for I am undone. I like that response of Isaiah because it's like in light of the goodness and the otherness of who God is. He sees himself This is the praise of the angels in heaven revelation chapter 4 verse 5 and then down in verse 8 The angels are singing. Holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and who is and who is to come I think for us There's a real danger that exists here in our fallen nature And in moments of our own arrogance and pride when rather than approaching the mountain when we try to ascend the mountain I think rather as people We should just bow a knee at the base of the mountain Thankful that we can be that close To worship at all This was a concept that the Jewish people really understood uh, The church has got back from a trip to Israel Those of you who were in Israel Maybe you heard this teaching At what's called today the southern steps But the southern steps lead up to The temple mountain So it would have been You would have went through the triple gate there And into the area where the temple is and in these southern steps, you'll notice something really interesting about them. There's not a normal cadence to the steps. There's two short steps and then one long step. So the risers are the same height, but the difference of the tread, they have a different width to it. So it's two short steps, one long step, two short steps, one long step. And, you know, it's, it's not built like that because the people didn't know how to build. They were very intentional in doing that. Why is that? Because steps with that kind of cadence, you can't just run up them. As a worshiper approaching the temple of God, you had to be intentional about every step. You had to watch your feet. You had to approach slowly. It allowed for people to be introspective on their way to worshiping God. And there's something that we as 21st century Americans can learn from this. That, it, that we, we have the ability to approach the throne of God. Again, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that we, that, that we don't have that. I'm saying that we need to approach God with some awe and with some reverence. You know, I'm reminded of uh, one a pretty profound thing one of the worship pastors said recently, which is possible. Worship pastors can say profound things. But he said this. He said, the closer we get to God, the further we realize we are from him. That's really stuck with me. He said, the closer we get to God, the further we realize we are from him. It's the idea that the more we see of Christ, the more we actually can see of ourselves. We can look at the scriptures like a mirror. And in that mirror the more we grow towards maturity the more we see the goodness of who christ is and our own fallenness We see our own need for a savior as we grow A life of all recognizes the greatness and the grandeur of who god is it recognizes god's otherness It recognizes his transcendence Now in contrast to the transcendence of god a life of all number four it rests in god's imminence you're getting a couple three dollar theological words here from Pastor Jimmy tonight, so you take this home at no extra charge. Verse seventeen, it says, "And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain." You can underline that section there if it's your Bible. The word "imminence" is simply a word that means nearness. Here is the awesome thing about God: He's big enough to create and to sustain the universe. Yet he's close enough to be what the Bible describes as one who sticks closer than a brother. He's totally concerned with every detail of your life. He even knows how many hairs are on your head. And for some of you, that's more than others. (laughs) If you know Christ, you never go through a difficult moment in your life alone. Whatever difficulty you're facing, God is not unaware. Whether it's family or finances whether it's a career or calling if it's cancer or criticism if it's an Unrealized hope or a shattered dream or an uncertain future. God is not unaware of any of that And some of you are coming in here tonight and You're carrying some burdens with you And maybe it doesn't feel too much like god is near You need to hear this tonight Because the lord is near psalm 34 verse 18 says the lord is near to those who have a broken heart Psalm 145, verse 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him. Philippians 4, verse 5, I love it. It's simply four words in the NIV. It says, The Lord is near. See what God did here with the people of Israel in Exodus 19, is he brought them out to the foot of the mountain. And he did that so they would know with the fact. So they would actually be able to see with their own eyes that God is near. The nearness of God should be a reason for us to have great joy no matter what comes your way in life think about this no matter what comes your way in life god is near he's always at hand he's not unaware of these things so number four a life in all of god rests in god's imminence. and number five and finally a life in all of god rejoices in the gospel Turn with me to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, if you would, because I want to I show you kind of one final thing here that bookends this larger story, because the author of the book of Hebrews is going to use this story here from Exodus chapter 19 as a powerful teaching tool to illustrate the glory of the new covenant, the gospel of what Jesus has done for us. So look with me at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. I see, I still hear pages turning. It's music to my ears. Verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more, For they could not endure what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am extremely afraid and trembling. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, to the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to the God of the just of all, to the spirits of just men men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Here the author is drawing a powerful contrast Between these two mountains between mount sinai and mount zion between the mountain of the law and the mountain of grace And let me illustrate it to you this way You can look at the screen because mount sinai was a place of fear and terror But mount zion was a place of love and grace mount sinai was in a lonely desert But mount zion is the city of the king mount sinai concerned earthly conduct But mount zion the new covenant what christ has done for us is all about it concerns our heavenly citizenship At Mount Sinai, the law was given and we saw that mankind is guilty before God. But the awesome part what we see here in Hebrews chapter 12 is that at Mount Zion, mankind is made perfect by God. Mount Sinai was about the law. Mount Zion is about grace. Mount Sinai was about death. Mount Zion was about life mount sinai was um, mount sinai was mediated by moses he was the one who represented the people to god but at mount zion it's mediated by the perfect mediator between god and man the man jesus christ and so here's what the author's trying to say in light of this contrast if the first mountain was meant to invoke a response of worship and of all from the worshiper then the second mountain Mount Zion, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, should evoke even a greater sense of awe within the worshiper. Here's the radical thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That has never been about our ability to get up the mountain to God. That God actually came down the mountain to us. That he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. Where the law shows us to be guilty, it shows him to be righteous. He died the death to pay the penalty that you and I could never pay. And he rose again to life. Do you know why this is awesome? Because true life is a person and his name is Jesus. And this is something that we should approach with awe. I find fitting here the words of Dr. Graham Scroggie when he said, The story which began in a garden ends in a city. And between the two there stands a cross. Across where the tragedy of the garden is transformed into the triumph of the city. So, as you're here tonight and you're asking that question Do I live a life in all of God? Does my all match the awesomeness of who God is? You can use these five things to help test that, to help answer that question. Because a life in all of God, it remembers God's sovereignty, it responds with obedience. It recognizes God's transcendence. It rests in his imminence and it rejoices regularly in the gospel. Let me leave you with the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. I like it from the NIV best. I'll read it to you. It says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. May we be people who live a life in awe of God And what he's done for us. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, we thank you for these stories in scripture. And we thank you for the things that we can learn. We thank you for this this revelation you gave of yourself as the awesome God. The creator of the universe here in Exodus chapter 19 to the people. And God, we confess just like the author of the book of Hebrews wants us to learn. That if that first mountain which brought the law was worthy of, of awesomeness then God, the new covenant, the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, what you've done for us, the fact that you came down the mountain to us, it's worthy of that much more awe. I pray that you'd help us to be people who can live lives of obedience to you because we stand in awe of what you've done for us. God, we thank you for the glory of the new covenant. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And I pray for anybody who's here tonight. Maybe they're struggling in an ongoing pattern of sin. I pray that you'd help them to to realize it's not maybe a law problem, but it's an all problem. You'd help them to live their life in all of you. And in that all, they'd be able to live for you in obedience. God, we ask that you'd help us where we're weak. We pray that you'd remind us regularly of what you've done for us. Lord, we stand in all of who you are. And we thank you that we have this opportunity to be here together tonight. I ask that you'd watch over and bless us till we come together again. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.